We protect what we love. We baby-proof our house when we have little ones because we love them and we want to protect them. When our children get older, we give them curfews because we love you and we want to protect you. We protect what we love. We put our favorite, most beloved car in the garage and the other cars on the street because we love that car. We protect what we love, and God does too. God protects and shelters and secures that which he loves with a fierce, never giving up, fatherly love. And we also, we we protect that which we love, but we also, each of us want to feel and know we're protected. I have a son, he wants me to ask him, will you be okay? Like if he gets hurt, will you be okay? And he wants to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to be okay. Because in the moment, you know, his arm hurts or whatever. So will you be okay? And we all kind of ask that. We want to know, we want to be able to say, we'll be okay. This Christmas season might be different for you as compared to previous holidays. Maybe loved ones are missing or traditions have had to change. Maybe hard things are a part of this year, this Advent, this Christmas. And we want to know, even through all the difficulty, will it be okay? And God wants to give you assurance, not as a fleeting pipe dream or wishful thinking, but assurance as a feeling rooted in reality that he will care for you. He will protect you, and everything in his care, everything will be okay. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. The king here has a palace, a home has been built for him, and he has rest. This is King David, the psalm, Psalm 89. In part is about King David, in part about another greater king. But we have King David here sitting in throne. Second Samuel chapters 1 through 6 is the story of David's ascension to the throne. When Saul dies and he, David finally, God's anointed one, comes to the throne. And in those first six chapters, it's hard. It's not smooth. But here, finally, David is on the throne, and a home has been built for him, and he has rest. That's significant for Israel. They have been promised rest, but their whole lives have been upside down, surrounded by difficulty and challenges and bondage and enemies, and King David's life has been very challenging. It's been marked by wars, but here it's significant that in this narrative we read, he has rest. At this point, the wars have stopped. And in that moment of peace, he notices something. I have a cedar house. That's a way in Hebrew of saying a really expensive house. 
really sturdy, strong, beautiful, like your dream home. David has it, and he's dwelling secure. And in that moment, he looks at the ark of God, and he says, I have a cedar house, but God has a tent. And the word in Hebrew it's, that David uses isn't like nomadic residence, like a tent you would put up. It's the word for curtain. And so the king, David, says, this doesn't add up. I have a palace. God has a flappy piece of fabric. Something's off. And so he goes to David and he brings it up. Or he goes to Nathan, the prophet, the messenger from God. He'll know what to do. And he, it doesn't tell us everything that's said. But Nathan hears him out and he's like, well, the Lord is with you, David, clearly. You're on the throne. Now you have rest. Go, do what's in your heart. Essentially, he says, go build God a house. And we know as you track with the David story, eventually he, he puts all of these preparations together to build a beautiful home for God. And so Nathan says, go and build a house. You know, God cares about his dwelling place with his people. He does care. In Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, God, the, the God who creates all things and owns all things, he builds a paradise garden for him and his image bearers to dwell in. He builds Eden, perfect. That's where he will be with his people. Then in Exodus, we read God really cares about his home in the tabernacle, very specific details about what his tent should look like. He cares. Solomon, David's son, will eventually build a house, a temple, and it's glorious, far surpasses David's home. And God cares about his dwelling place among men. And so David thinks rightly, we need to make this look accurate. I have a palace, God has a, a window covering, let's make it right. It's a good plan, it's a godly plan, but it's not God's plan. Look at the next couple verses with me. This is verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go, tell my servant David. That's significant, servant David. Do you know who's been called from God's own mouth servant? This is a sidetrack. This is for free. Moses. That's it, Moses. Jacob is called a servant of God. But the only one, my servant, Moses, then David. That's, write that in your Bible, a note there. That's good to know. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since that day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? That's the leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says here to David, I don't need you to do anything for me to be with you. That's a summary. David, I don't need you to do anything for me to be with you. I'm not going to run out on you because you have a cedar house and I have a tent. And God reminds David that ever since he brought his people up out of Egypt, he has been with them. He has not abandoned them. If they had to wander around in tents, God said, I will wander around with them. 
I'm going to be in their midst. I'm not going to abandon my people. I'm not going to run out on them, even if I have to dwell in a tent. I want to be with my people. God loves his people. He wants to be with them. And he tells David, I wasn't upset about this. I wasn't angry. In fact, I wanted to be with my people. I wanted to be with them. God doesn't use the word when he's speaking curtain. The word he uses, tent, is what you would think of a tent, a home, a movable home. And in the book of Exodus, the word God uses is often related to the tabernacle. It's the covering of the tabernacle. And then when he says, my dwelling in verse 6, that word in Exodus is usually translated tabernacle. So God is saying, David, I am with my people. I will be with you. What he's talking about is He's helping David reflect on his condescension, that he, the creator of all things, mighty God, would come, condescend to be with his people. God's presence with his people. That is maybe the most significant theme of your entire Bible. God's desire and purpose to be with his people. From Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, God is on mission to be with you. It is what we celebrate in Christmas, in Advent, the coming of God to be with his people. The coming of God again to be with his people. So while David has a great, large, beautiful, ambitious plan to construct God a house, God says, that's not my plan for you. So here's a moment of reflection for you. What do you do when you have a godly plan, great, huge plans for God's glory in your life, and God says to your good idea, no, that's not my plan. You know, we might have these big plans for God's glory, but they have to run through God. And the New Testament teaches us the way we align our hearts and our minds and our plans to God is we go to him by the power of the Spirit in prayer and we ask for wisdom. God, is this good to you? And we wait and we listen. We have brothers and sisters pray for us and we we just wait until God says, yes, this is my plan. So after God reminds David of his willingness and his desire to be amongst his people, look at verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. The title, Lord of Hosts, this is God's, this indicates God's sovereign power. 
He's sovereign over all things. And it's the sovereign one who reached out in grace and wisdom and picked a shepherd boy to be the prince of Israel. God's grace acted upon David. Then after David was, as he's coming to the throne, God's grace goes before David to subdue his enemies. And now that God, or David is sitting on the throne, God is staying with David. And so God rehearses his faithfulness to David. Verse 8 and verse 9. God is rehearsing his faithfulness to David because God's going to make more promises to him. God wants David to remember, you do not have to do anything for me to be with you. I came to you. I was with you. I was before you, not the other way around, David. So it is with all of us, friends. If you know God's love, it's because God loved you first. If you delight in God's presence, it's because God delighted to come be with you. Grace first and we follow. You know, David, as God calls him, he has to cooperate. He has to kneel to be anointed. He has to draw a sword to win battles. He has to sit on the throne to be a king. But it is always a response to what God has done and what God is doing. And so David is cooperating with what God is already up to. And so it is with your whole Christian life. You are called to co-labor with God in his kingdom project, but you achieve nothing but what God achieves through you and what he is working out in your own life. And then we have these two promises to David in verse 9. I will make you a great name. And verse 11, I will make you a house. That's a flip in the script. David says, I got to make God a house. God says, I'm going to make you a house. It's the word for household, family, the household of David. I'm going to make you a great household. This is God's promise to increase David's renown and his kingly heritage because God has a plan for the prince, for the shepherd prince. And so he makes these promises. You're going to have a In your kingly line, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to work out in your family, David, because I have a plan. I have a a reason for these promises. And the reason is sandwiched, if you're looking at the text, verse 9, promise to David. Verse 11, promise to David. And right in the middle, in verse 10, in the first half of verse 11, is a promise to God's people. God has a plan for King David because the God who is in a tent has a people who he wants to bring to safety. Look at verse 10 again with me. He says, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. God's people whom he loves, they have not been in safety. Throughout their history, they had no land. They were nomads, always susceptible to foreign power. They were held in bondage for many years, slaves in Egypt. 
They were held captive by idolatry and forced to wander in the desert. They had terrible leadership in the judges that led them continually away from God's protection. Their first king was a bust. They're surrounded by enemies. They don't know what it feels like to have rest. And God says to David, I'm going to work through your line, making these promises to you because I have a people I love and I want to bring them rest from all their enemies. This promise in verse 10 and 11, it reaches back. It reaches back to Abraham. You remember Abraham? Abraham was called by God And God was working out in Abraham, I want to be with my people. And so, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And in that land, you and your family, you will dwell with me. And you will be lights to all nations that you can come and live with God through my redeeming love. That's God's plan for Abraham. And God took Abraham in Genesis 13, 4. And Abraham's standing, it says, from the place where you are standing. Same word here that we read in verse 10. Abraham, from where you are standing. He's standing in the middle of the promised land. Look out to the north and south, east and west. I'm going to give you all of this because I want to be with you. That's the promise to Abraham. So his promise here is fulfilling the promise to Abraham. But it reaches back even further to the Garden of Eden. We read here, God says, I'm going to plant my people. The first time God planted something is Genesis 2.8 when he planted the Garden of Eden and he took his image bearers and he brought them there that they could be with him. They could know his forever love. They could have forever life in his presence. He built this home for them. He planted it for them. A place where man could find perfect peace with God and security in his rule in a dwelling place. But man rejected God's Rejected God's protective rule. Rather than living under the safety of his care, we said, no thanks. We can take care of ourselves. We can be the Lord of our lives. We can give ourselves everything we need. And we sinned against God. That's Romans 5, 12 to 19. And because of this rebellion, mankind was forced from God's presence, forced from his dwelling place on earth, and sent out into a world to wage war. Surrounded by all kinds of enemies and without a home. Most of all, we're surrounded by the enemy that has infused our lives, which is sin. Rebellion against God. And that enemy that lurks in us, it brings us everything that's the opposite of secure, security in God's presence. Shame, guilt, brokenness, hopelessness, and worst of all, death. It's interesting that after Cain murdered Abel, remember Cain, Adam and Eve, they're evicted from the garden, Cain murders Abel, and then it says in Genesis 4 that he went looking for a dwelling place usually translated settlement or settled, but it's the same word here in verse 10. Because he lost from God. He had no home. And here, God reaches all the way back. He promises his people, his image bearers, I will give you a home. Through a king, I will bring you home. In verse 12, let's finish up together. 
This is now a promise for after David's life. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. When David dies, one of his sons will be established by God. This Davidic son will have a forever kingdom, a forever rule and reign. He will be the king that Israel has always needed, bringing God's people to God, and he will build God a house, a forever house for God. And your mind, we run quickly to Solomon, who comes next and builds God a temple, builds God a home in Jerusalem. But these promises quickly surpass what Solomon did. This king here will sit enthroned forever. Solomon doesn't sit enthroned forever. This king will build a house that will last forever, a home for God. Solomon's temple is destroyed, broken. This king will have a dominion that will reign and last forever. Solomon and David, their kingdom ends. The last Davidic, pop quiz, last Davidic king to sit on the throne in the Old Testament. Zedekiah. And he had the awful privilege of being the king when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was ransacked and the people were taken into captivity. God promises, though, a forever kingdom with a forever king so that his people can dwell in safety. But the people from God, from David to Solomon and on and on and on, they are harassed by enemies. They get confused about worship. They celebrate foreign gods instead of the true God. And they walk in sin because they have no king that can rule their hearts and lead them to God. Why? Because this promise requires a perfect king. Did you see that, David? God said, I will discipline wayward kings. David, any of your sons that you have that are sinful, I will be like a father and I will discipline them. And that's what God does. God disciplines David when David sins. And it affects the whole people of God. God disciplines Solomon and on and on and on. And the nation is left wondering after failed king, after failed king, after failed king, how can the promise in 2 Samuel be fulfilled if the kings keep failing God and failing us? We're, we're coming to the end. Are you with me? Dig in. How can these promises be fulfilled if there's no king who can do it? Who can rule our hearts and bring us to God? Psalm 89, Psalm 110, Psalm 132 all wrestle with that same question. How can the people of God find rest in his presence when no one can bring us to God? When no king can do it? The Davidic covenant requires a perfect Davidic king that needs no discipline who can rule forever over God's people and bring them to God. And so the answer to that question is first and foremost, the steadfast love of God. The steadfast love of God. God says to David, even though you will fail, I will not fail you. 
Even though all the world has failed, I will not fail. Steadfast love, that's the Hebrew for covenant faithfulness. God will be faithful to David so that he can bring his people to safety in his presence. As the prophetic writers reflect on this promise in 2 Samuel, the eternal love and faithfulness of God, and they know that every David king has failed, they begin to wonder, what's going on, God? And then God gives them these pictures of this perfect king that can rule our hearts, that can bring his people to God. In Isaiah chapter 9 to 11, Isaiah gets this picture of the the Messiah, the anointed king of David, and he's so wonderful and so perfect and so righteous and so holy and so empowered by God that not just Israel will come to him, but all nations, all God's image bearers can come and find peace in his reign. Isaiah 55, the same message There will be a king whose, the government will be on his shoulders. This is in Isaiah. He will be the the prince of peace for all people who would come to him. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem and wrapped in a swaddling cloth, like a piece of fabric you might put over a, a window, deity, came to tabernacle, as John would say in his gospel, with man. God made the promises to David because he had, as a son, as a father, as a son, he has a son who can rule and reign over our hearts and bring us to security in God's presence. You know, Matthew's gospel, it takes great lengths to show us that Jesus is the true promised offspring of David. The genealogy that opens Matthew is written and constructed in such a way that when you're done reading it, you go, wow, Jesus is David's son. It's intentional. When the angel comes to Joseph and tells him about Mary's pregnancy, he says, Joseph, son of David. Matthew wants you to make that connection. When the wise men come to worship Jesus in Matthew's gospel, they say, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews. He's a baby. In Luke's gospel, when the Virgin Mary, who is, she's told, hey, your womb will be like a home for God. And when they're speaking, the angel says, the Lord will give Jesus the throne of his father. Joseph, the throne of his father, David. When Jesus begins his preaching ministry, his theme is kingdom. Kingdom of God that has come in him. And he begins this kingly task. David had rest. He was reigning over all Israel. Jesus comes preaching a kingdom and he's reaching out to all people, bringing even a Syrophoenician woman. And he says, you belong. And so he's bringing God's people together. It's a kingly task. Then Jesus begins talking about building God a house. In fact, he says, in me, something greater than a house is here. John chapter 2, he says, tear down this big temple, and I'm going to build God a house in three days. Jesus also knew that the king didn't just solve Israel's problems, but Adam's problem. The true king would reach out to all nations and be a light, a path to peace with God, safety in his presence and under his rule. And then Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, stay with me, on his way to Jerusalem, he walks through the city Jericho. 
That's like Gentile as it gets. It's everything that is Gentile paganism and sinfulness. And Jesus, on the way to the cross, he's got to go through Jericho. Because there was a Gentile there named Bartimaeus. Blind, beggar, broken in sin. But he hears that Jesus is walking by and he calls out, Jesus, son of David. And King Jesus comes and heals him. He can see, but not just that. It says in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10, Bartimaeus got up and he went on the way with Jesus because he saw the king. He said, this is the way. And he went with Christ. So Jesus walked in Jerusalem with his Israelite buddies and Bartimaeus in tow, and he entered the city like a king riding on a donkey. People hailing him as David's son. But he didn't go to Jerusalem to defeat Rome or establish new leadership in the temple, which was expected. He entered to defeat the single most dangerous enemy to all creation, that enemy that takes away eternal peace, sin. So Jesus walks into Jerusalem not to bind up corrupt readers, but to be bound by corrupt leaders. Not to slay Gentile oppression, but to be slain by Roman soldiers. And he's convicted by the Jews and by Pilate of claiming to be king. And so when he's crucified, there's a sign above his cross in three different languages that reads, here is the king. And King Jesus came to die on that cross. But this death was the way for rest and security and forever peace. Although Jesus was the only Davidic king that did not deserve discipline, he knew that he was the only one who could become a substitute for our discipline. To take our cross, our place on the cross, to be disciplined for our sins. Even at his birth, the angels proclaimed this to be the central, most important reason Jesus had come to live with us. The angel told Joseph, Jesus has come to save his people from their foreign oppressors. He's come to save them from the life that they wish they didn't have to live. Is that what the angel says? He's come to save them from their sins. The son of God died. He died a death we deserve and he was buried in a garden because God was planting again. And this time God was planting through the death of Christ and his body put in a tomb, seeds of resurrection, everlasting life. For by faith in the cross work of Jesus Christ and his death, we are raised with him. The everlasting king who sits enthroned now forever. And we become the house that Jesus built. Infused, become the dwelling place of God. You know, we protect what we love and God protects what he loves. Sin has separated each of us from God and forced us into a frantic search for a secure dwelling. And we look for kings to bring us to safety. We look to, to pleasure and consumerism and traditions. Please give me a sense that everything's going to be okay. We look to ourselves. We, I can be king. But Jesus knew only he could reign over our broken hearts. Only he could establish a kingdom of forgiveness and wash us clean and lead us into God's presence. Everything is okay. And you know, today the church has enemies. We wait for the day of the second advent when there will be no enemy. But this Christmas, there are those who would silence our carols and our message. 
But there's no enemy that can take Christ out of the manger. There's no enemy that can take Christ off and his power off the cross. No enemy that can take Jesus and put him back in the grave or pull him down from the throne or stop his second coming because the greatest enemy in your life has been defeated, your sin. And so there's safety in Jesus. Security in knowing that he will lead you to God as you follow him on the way. There's safety in knowing that he surrounds you with a family called the church to uphold you and support you as you bear the burdens of this world. There's safety for your children and the, chi- the king who became a child to rescue them. And there's safety in knowing that promise that Jesus echoes, the same one that God said to David, the father said to David, Jesus says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for this time. I feel like we raced through your scripture this morning. So take what is true here and settle it in our hearts. That we would look to you as our king, as our safety and security, as our our dwelling place. And that as we turn this afternoon even to celebrate your birth, that you, King Jesus, would reign enthroned in our celebrations and enthroned over our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.